This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Who are the young traditionalists? Today, the Return to Order Moment will consider a generation that is just beginning to reach maturity. The mainstream media presents a monolithic picture of a generation whose members are increasingly socialist, who reject religion, and who embrace immorality. The real picture is far more nuanced. While many young adults are more inclined toward the left, many others are more traditionalist than their elders. They are repulsed by the moral depravity of a cynical and materialistic generation that brought about the so-called sexual revolution. The first article analyzes the immediate situation facing those who are graduating in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. Mr. John Horvath II offers three counsels for the unfortunate graduation class of 2020. This article was originally published on the Imaginative Conservative. Rarely have graduates faced challenges like those that fall upon the class of 2020. They entered the school year in one America and now come out in another. The new graduates will be forced to navigate in uncharted waters. Thus, this graduation will not be like those of the past. Most graduations were celebrations of an education that prepared graduates for an expected future. Seniors usually entered into paths already blazed before them. Thus, commencement speeches varied little from year to year or even from generation to generation. There was the usual mix of bubbly optimism, sage advice, and cautious warnings. None of that applies anymore. Today's graduates will not even have the luxury of a traditional ceremony. Their celebrations will be live-streamed, masked, and distanced. They face a terrifying specter given to them not by choice, but by circumstances. The immensity of this depression-like crisis is mind-boggling. Today's graduates will not be prepared. It is not their fault, for nobody knows how to deal with this future. Indeed, the 2020 class might think itself unfortunate to graduate during this tragic time. These three pieces of advice might help graduates in the uncertain days ahead. The first counsel is to mature quickly. Abandon the childish narratives that have long dominated youth culture even after graduation. The unfortunate circumstances will demand this. Graduates have long been encouraged to extend their youth by indulging in self-gratification. With the crisis, the culture and infrastructure that made this possible will be devastated. Adapt by maturing quickly. Gone should be the days of quote-unquote adulting, in which graduates could afford to put off the decisions of adulthood and behave with irresponsibility. Abandon the party culture that favors the unbridled passions and fails to consider other higher reasons for existence. The time of the snowflake is over. Few will have patience in the age of nothing to listen to the complaints of those who feel entitled to everything. When things collapse, childish narratives are no longer an option. The class of 2020 will have no choice but to mature or fade away. How fortunate its graduates will be if they accept the responsibilities of adulthood. In the post-World War II era, the youth culture taught young adults to avoid suffering and misfortune by embracing lifestyles that were haphazard, irresponsible, and noncommittal. 
They demanded the frenetic intemperance of wanting everything, instantly and effortlessly. The tragic results of this way of life can now be seen in shattered families, broken communities, and lost faith. Thus, the Second Council is to embrace suffering. Reverse this cultural norm. In the coming months, misfortune will not be a choice but a certainty. It can be faced with resentment or courage. However, it must be confronted. All people must suffer in life, but this class will be forced to embrace it sooner and more intensely. Learn to endure these hardships with calm and courage. Come to see this suffering as something formative that will prove helpful for the future. Given the fallen nature of humanity, there will always be misfortune. While there are moments of joy and satisfaction, life is a way of the cross on the path to sanctification. A person reaches the greatest degree of happiness on earth by embracing the cross, like our Lord, with serene resolve. Indeed, the psalmist says that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Psalm 125, verse 5. Rarely in the nation's history have graduates faced a crisis like the present one. It is a colossal threat to the country. It was impossible to be adequately prepared. Thus, everyone needs to have recourse to God. The problem is that the prevailing mentality separates God from the ordinary course of events. The individual reigns supreme, and all decide their futures. For many, God is considered no more than psychological support for people in their moments of weakness. In the face of the present crisis, everyone is weak. Everyone will need support. Thus, the final counsel is to confide immensely in God. Once again, there is no choice but to take this supernatural path since the times will demand it. The normal recourse to God will not be enough in the hard times ahead. An extraordinary crisis requires extraordinary aid. Have recourse to Almighty God. Have confidence that He will never abandon those who call upon Him. Thus, at every opportunity, for all things big and small, call on God and His Blessed Mother for aid. By God's grace, a person becomes capable of doing heroic things beyond human nature. Thus, by confiding immensely in God, the unfortunate class of 2020 may strengthen itself beyond all expectations. It may well become fortunate by accomplishing much more than the classes that came before. The counsels to mature quickly, embrace suffering, and confide immensely are offered in the face of circumstances that are pouring upon this graduating class. Those graduating will need the prayers and help of all those around them. Their successes will have much greater value since they will be bought at the cost of greater suffering. The price of failure will also be much higher than in times past. However, graduates must count themselves fortunate that they are being put to the test. They will not be allowed to sink into mediocrity. The future of this unfortunate made fortunate class of 2020 will be determined by their fighting spirit, their mettle. This year's graduates can become America's second great generation or a lost one. The decision is theirs. This is the end of three counsels for the unfortunate graduation class of 2020 by John Horvath II.
One thing that the leftists refuse to recognize is the strength of pro-life sentiment among the young. Edwin Benson explores that situation in his article, A Leftist Conundrum. Who could possibly be young and pro-life? The Public Religion Research Institute conducts polling about the role of religion in American life. Its stated purpose is to be, quote, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to conducting independent research at the intersection of religion, culture, and public policy, unquote. Its partnerships with the Atlantic and the Brookings Institution would place its political orientation as left of center, but not radical. In October 2019, the Institute released a study titled, Younger Americans Are More Likely to Support Abortion Legality Than Any Other Age Group. The text reports that, quote, Younger Americans, ages 18 to 29, are more supportive of abortion compared to other age groups. Nearly 6 in 10, 59%, of younger Americans support abortion legality in all or most cases, compared to 54% of adults ages 30 to 49, 53% of adults ages 50 to 64, and 49% of seniors ages 65 and older, unquote. While pro-abortion supporters may welcome this support from youth as good news, there is a troubling side, at least for them. The figure implies that about 40% of young people oppose legal abortion. It shows that the pro-life movement is remarkably robust in the face of a hostile culture. Several facts buttress this conclusion. First, every adult who was alive when the Supreme Court handed down its disastrous decision in Roe v. Wade, 1973, is now over 65. No one under the age of 47 ever drew a breath in an America in which abortion was illegal. During this long period, the law remains unsettled. It is even more controversial now than it was in 1973. Four out of ten young people oppose something that has been legal since their parents were children. Secondly, these young people grew up in the most hypersexualized culture in human history. They had access to the dark side of the Internet since early childhood. Their televisions always portrayed cohabitation as a positive thing. Vulgar rap and other music is a part of their youth culture. Vile language was tolerated in most of their schools. All these things favor the abortion mentality of sexual freedom. And still... 40% of these youth are pro-life. Finally, many young people came from broken homes, as about 40% of marriages end in divorce. If some had the good fortune to live in intact families, many of their friends, schoolmates, and cousins did not. They lived in a society in which divorce was normal and an expression of sexual freedom. In a world where religion played a diminishing role, these young people are amazing survivors of the culture war. Indeed, four out of ten young people lived through the most pro-death culture that Satan could throw at them, and yet still opposed the intentional deaths of pre-born children. Maggie Astor of the New York Times decided to take a peek into the lives of these young people. She is a liberal political reporter and therefore hostile to pro-life causes. She published a recent story that reveals an unexpected passion for life among youth. 
The article appeared with the expressive title, Trump Pushes Young Republicans Away, Abortion Pulls Them Back. She interviewed two dozen Republicans ages 18 to 23. Her overall assessment was that, quote, Almost all of them, while expressing fundamentally conservative views, identified at least one major issue on which they disagreed with the party line. But more often than not, they said one issue kept them committed to the party. Abortion. She quotes eight of the interviewees in her story. One of the most representative comments was from 20-year-old Autumn Crawford, a Minnesotan studying at Ohio State University, Quote, I am of the firm belief that you can't be pro-life and vote Democrat. I'm not pro-Trump. I will vote Republican because I will not vote Democrat. But that doesn't mean I'm happy about it, unquote. Unfortunately, Maggie Astor did not ask, or at least did not report, the interviewee's reasons for being anti-abortion. It would have made her story more interesting. She is respectful but seems unwilling to understand how the people she interviewed could be both young and passionately pro-life. Perhaps she would understand if she were to talk to the hundreds of thousands of young people who participate in the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. She would find the survivors of the culture war alive and well, and ready to take back America from the culture of death that has so disfigured the nation. This is the end of A Leftist Conundrum. Who Could Possibly Be Young and Pro-Life? by Edwin Benson. The last article for this podcast considers the phenomenon of young people who are attracted to traditional religious practice. That situation is considered by John Horvat II in his article, Why Young People Are Attracted to the Sublime. This article was first published on The Catholic Thing. Liberal writers have trouble explaining the attraction of young people for religion, especially in its more traditional forms. This attraction is not supposed to happen. It short-circuits the logic of their exhausted narratives. Young people should be drawn to revolutionary narratives that preach division and equality. Histories, liberals say, is a succession of power struggles that divide people into exploiters and exploited. Young religious people do not fit the narrative because they seek a uniting and all-loving God. When such writers cannot find class struggle inside this religious attraction, they default into a litany of charges accusing young devotees of being racist, misogynist, homophobic, and even elitist. Tara Isabel Burton's lengthy story in the New York Times, May 8, 2020, added one more adjective to the collection. Traditional young Christians are weird. The author caused an uproar with her essay titled, Christianity Gets Weird. She self-identifies as a traditional young Christian attracted to the external forms. She loves incense chapel veils, Gregorian chant, and sacramentals. However, as a postmodern young lady divorced from any major Western narratives, she finds it hard to explain her attractions to the medieval splendor and quote-unquote historical pageantry of worship in Latin. Secular liberals observing this trend face a similar perplexity. 
They try to explain away this religious attraction as a youthful craze. They blame it on a superficial and fetishized attraction to quote-unquote otherworldly aesthetics. However, they also end up exasperated, labeling what they cannot understand as weird. Tara and many who join her online accept the label in jest with ironic resignation. For lack of a better adjective, they consider themselves weird Christians. Thus, weird Christians are appearing on the cultural scene, often in Internet spaces where they can congregate and share their views. Tara claims that, quote, more and more young Christians, disillusioned by the political binaries, economic uncertainties, and spiritual emptiness that have come to define modern America, are finding solace in the decidedly anti-modern vision of faith, unquote. These millennials and Gen Zers sense the hollowness of the postmodern cultural wasteland. They also reject the shallowness of mainline Protestant churches that have watered down supernatural truths and exalted the trivial. These online pilgrims detest the barren, ugly, and brutal aspects of modern life. They want something real and profound. Their penchant for returning to the Middle Ages represents the liberals' worst nightmare. What disconcerts liberals is not the attraction these young Christians have for traditional forms, but their rejection of the liberal order's a-metaphysical foundation. That rejection is accelerated by the political and economic breakdown of that order wrought by the coronavirus. The problem with this countercultural current is its difficulty in defining and expressing itself. Its followers never knew the traditional world they now admire. They are victims of a chaotic postmodern culture without structures and stability. Tara claims a punk rebelliousness characterizes the movement that seems to be against everything establishment, including modern economy. They are driven by, quote, their hunger for something more than contemporary American culture can offer, something transcendent, politically meaningful, personally challenging, unquote. They do not know exactly what they seek, but seeing something that enthralls them, they latch onto it with great passion. Superficial critics of the movement dismiss this attachment as clinging to externals that can lead to dangerous things. The critics are wrong. There is a name for what these young Christians seek and find in traditional worship like Latin masses, incense, and solemn vespers. They find an authentic beauty that moves their souls and leads them to reject the contrary. Western philosophical thought calls this beauty the sublime. Edmund Burke rightly calls it, quote, the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling, unquote. The sublime consists of those things of transcendent excellence that cause a person to be overawed by their magnificence. It invites a person to turn beyond self-interest and gratification and look toward higher principles, the common good, or ultimately towards God, thus giving the meaning and purpose missing in one's life. Whether manifested in works of art, great feasts, or religious liturgy, the sublime incites sentiments of loyalty, dedication, and devotion that can fill the emptiness of the postmodern wasteland. The Church purposely surrounds herself with sublime things that overawe the faithful in their transcendent excellence. 
They are the normal things, sadly abandoned by progressives, that draw and convert people to the worship and service of God. These things are external manifestations that reveal something of God's sublime grandeur. Human nature is naturally attracted to them. These things are also attracted to principles and doctrines that enthrall the intellect by their logic and wisdom. The young Christians are right in assuming that the things that overawe them are part of a worldview that encompasses a way of life. They are also correct in perceiving the irreversible breakdown of the liberal order that offers them nothing sublime. Thankfully, there is nothing weird about their exploration of a Christian social order that runs contrary to individualistic alternatives. Their rejection of the liberal order horrifies the left, which has nothing of truth, beauty, and goodness to offer those hungering for meaning. The left dreads the desire for the sublime. They know that the sublime's welcoming attraction always proves hard to suppress. Liberalism does not feel threatened as long as traditional Christianity agrees to be one of the many elements in the cultural smorgasbord. However, when people reject the philosophical infrastructure that sustains liberalism, the tyrannical left becomes concerned about those who stray outside the box. The problem of these searching young Christians is not the objects of their admiration, but how to take the next steps that would normally lead to a deepening of their faith. They must go beyond the weird and embrace the sublime in all its fullness and authenticity. This is the end of Who Are the Young Traditionalists? Thank you so much for listening. To read these or to find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order to be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. T.F.P.